Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, an update on Wednesday's NYCHA settlement hearing in a Brooklyn federal court. Well, the testimonies were heartbreaking. I mean, we heard story after story of very sick seniors and children with elevated lead in their blood, folks suffering from asthma, folks with hospitalizations, folks with compounded health problems that are being exacerbated by their living conditions. And then, what makes people vote in elections against their own self-interest? An author, physician, and professor has an upcoming book that seeks to understand. What happens when you reject healthcare reform? Things like rejecting the Affordable Care Act, rejecting Medicare and Medicaid and the expansion of those programs. And what happens when we cut finances to schools? These were three very central components of the Trump agenda and before that of of the Tea Party. And I just started to add up the data and it turned out, lo and behold, who were the people who were suffering the most from those policies? It was the very people who were being promised a return to greatness. Hi, welcome to the show. In a few moments, we'll be speaking with frequent 112BK guest Jonathan Metzl about his upcoming book, Dying of Whiteness, which explores the health implications of a phenomenon he calls backlash governance. But first, we wanted to bring you an update on Wednesday's federal court NYCHA settlement hearing. Dozens of people testified before the judge. Hundreds more submitted letters and video accounts of their difficulties with New York's biggest landlord, some of which we shared on yesterday's show. Sabine Aronowski with the advocacy group the Fifth Avenue Committee was at the hearing yesterday, and we welcome her now by phone. Hi, Sabine. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mackenzie. Hello. So first, can you just give us a quick recap on what these hearings were about? There was a federal hearing in which a judge, Judge Pauly, was asked to hear arguments from the United States versus New York City Housing Authority as well as the Baez case. Both cases have to deal with the conditions that public housing residents are living with in regards to lead and mold in their apartments. Essentially, the Baez agreement has to do with the fact that the New York City Housing Authority has been noncompliant in trying to address mold in residents' apartments. And there has been a court-appointed special master in place for several years trying to review recommendations and process about how to get mold abated in residents' homes. I was just curious about what you saw yesterday, because we heard that some NYCHA tenants had received a notification about the hearing and thought that they were actually summonses. Is that right? Yes. So as part of the settlement hearing, there were notices sent by New York City Housing Authority and the Department of Justice to notify residents about this hearing on the consent decrees for both settlements. And residents received a letter that, that said such. And some residents showed up yesterday thinking that they were actually being summoned to court. And so that created a lot of confusion for residents and frustration. Um, But really, it was for an opportunity for residents to testify in front of the judge about conditions in their homes and about the lack of repairs and a a slew of of violations of housing codes that that New York City is now attempting to settle with the Department of Justice. 
So we heard accounts about NYCHA residents showing up thinking that they had to report to court. Um, and in actuality, uh, this was an opportunity for tenants who had already registered to speak back in August to air their grievances. What did you hear? What were some of those testimonials that were entered into court? Well, the testimonies were heartbreaking. I mean, we heard story after story of very sick seniors and children with elevated uh, lead in their blood, folks suffering um, from asthma, folks with hospitalizations, folks with compounded health problems that are being exacerbated by their living conditions. And the judge at one point commented that it was absurd that the authority had millions of dollars that went unspent last winter uh, despite repeated complaints about lack of heat, broken boilers. Is that true? Yes. I mean, part of, just to give some perspective, this settlement is about the New York, New York City has agreed to enter into the settlement where they would give $2 billion distributed across 326 uh, public housing developments. And this wouldn't be a lump sum. It would be distributed over the course of, of probably about a decade. The problem is that this money is nowhere near enough. Currently, the physical need assessments for the entire NYCHA portfolio are close to $32 billion. And uh, what's most important is that the interiors of the, the residential units get addressed because that is where the lead and the mold is that are making residents sick. We're not even certain that this money would be deployed for the interiors of apartment. It would most likely be deployed for um, other capital needs because there is so much need right now. Right. It sounds like this uh, is a drop in the bucket. Right. And then the judge pointed out that this past fiscal year, there was, uh, I think it was about $300 million just left on the table, not even used. Residents, meanwhile, are really suffering and still waiting years to get repairs made in their apartments. Do you have a sense of how this case is going to conclude? What do you think the outcome will be? Well, I think the public advocate, um, who also testified yesterday, made some very strong recommendations that I hope the judge will, will consider. I think everybody who testified, you know, from the residents to the community-based groups to the public advocate, all agreed that the $2 billion settlement is nowhere near enough and that there needs to be much more um, money committed. But in addition to the, the monetary commitment, you know, there is so much concern around how the authority operates and concern about the federal monitor that would be appointed and their ability to really affect uh, accountability and transparency for a, a very broken authority that really needs to be completely overhauled. I mean, we heard that again and again. It's really not the buildings of public housing that are broken beyond repair. It's the management system. You know, we have everything from very poor communications to broken ticketing systems for repairs, ineffective or corrupt tenant associations and building managers with no decision-making power. And there's really little that is functioning properly to take action to help tenants. So that was an extreme concern. So it's not just about the money. Definitely more money needs to be invested, but it's also about compliance and and a monitor who would be appointed and oversight. Right. I think it's also important that the remedies 
really need to be properly assessed. Yesterday, they were speaking about uh, a pilot program that was initiated to help eliminate mold in people's home where there's a particular type of paint that is used, and that paint can be just as toxic. So uh, I think that was also a, a great concern to the, the residents that these repairs are done in a manner that which really provides for their health. This is an extreme environmental justice issue, and resident decision-making was also brought up a lot. People really felt that they're not true stakeholders in this process, and they are rent-paying New Yorkers. So, I mean, it's very important to remember that they are paying rent for for their housing, and they're living in slum-like conditions at this point. Well, thank you so much for that update. That's Sabine Aronowski. And coming up, our conversation about the health consequences of people voting against their own self-interest. Before the publication of Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas, we've known that people can be persuaded to vote against their own self-interest. But no book better crystallized the phenomenon and worked to explain how and why, grappling with the culture wars, assumptions about future wealth, and Jesus. Now comes a book that explores this occurrence in the age of Trump and describes the health implications of making such decisions. Looking specifically at white America, gun suicides, startling data on life expectancy, and the corrosiveness of the politics of fear. We welcome back to 112BK Jonathan Metzl, physician and Vanderbilt University professor and author of the upcoming book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I'm curious about the title of the book, Dying of Whiteness. Tell me a little bit about why that title. Sure. So the, the title came about over the process of writing the book. Uh, I'm, I'm somebody who I grew up in Missouri, uh, and I'm from the Midwest. And I've spent a lot of time talking to people who are Democrats and Republicans. And what I saw over the course of my, really my home states of Missouri and Kansas is two. there were two phenomena that I saw playing out that were actually nicely captured in What's the Matter with Kansas. One is that the politics shifted ever more to the right with the advent of the Tea Party and the so-called alt-right, the Freedom Caucus, then President Trump. So one, there was this shift rightward of, of many, many avenues of politics. And the second, not surprising to anybody to, in today's, you know, following today's news, is that that shift rightward was often uh, kind of went together with the promise of making white America great again or rest- restoring some kind of greatness to white America. And we've seen that again and again in the in the years leading up to Trump and certainly became more prevalent with Trump's policies. And I guess I just called on my experiences, again, growing up in Missouri and in Kansas as well, um, looking at actually what happened when the actual policies that were supposed to make white America great again became public health policies. And I looked specifically at what happens to populations when you make it much easier to have many guns in circulation. Um, The second was what happens when you reject healthcare reform, things like um, Um, rejecting the Affordable Care Act, rejecting Medicare and Medicaid and the expansion of those programs, and what happens when we cut finances to schools. These were three very central components of the Trump agenda and before that of of the Tea Party. And I just started to add up the data, and it turned out, lo and behold, who were the people who were suffering the most from those policies? It was the very people who were being promised a return to greatness. And I'm a physician, and I'm also a sociologist. So what I did over the course of my book is 
because I just started to add up how many days and weeks of life are these particular policies going to cost white Americans when they're, when they're put into place? And the numbers I found were truly startling in terms of just what happened to white life expectancy when these policies that were supposed to make whiteness great again came into being. And hence the title, Dying of Whiteness, because really these, these policies almost functioned like disease risk factors, like secondhand smoke or asbestos, in terms of the effect they had on people's, uh, on people's lives. So being a Republican or, or voting conservative is the same as smoking a couple packs a day. <laughs> well, actually, I, I tried very. Even though I, I have, I have, rem, I talk to remarkable people over the course of the book. I go to Southern Missouri and I sit in on NRA meetings. I talk to people who have lost family members to to gun suicide. I talk to administrators who saw their schools getting just eviscerated by these particular budget cuts. Um, I talk to people who are medically ill and dying and still rejecting uh, the Affordable Care Act. And what I found really was your individual politics didn't really matter all that much. I found people who were sympathetic and striving and kind on all sides. Um, but if you lived in an area where the Tea Party or the alt-right or a right-wing kind of Republican agenda was put into place in a way that shaped a public health policy, the risk really was that you lived in one of those areas. And because many of those areas were predominantly white, then it kind of followed that white populations were the ones that were dying as a result of these particular policies. And you talk about this term backlash governance. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I just mean that, you know, we saw this uh, over the course of the Obama, Obama presidency quite a bit, that really the modern Tea Party, for example, came into being right around the time that President Obama was uh, elected. Um, and the idea was basically an idea that had been in, in circulation for a long time, that the federal government is out to get you, that it's tyrannical, that we need to defend ourselves against the government, and that also that white populations were being somehow, um, you know, unfairly surveilled or subjected to government interference. And so this idea of backlash is a backlash that I'm, I'm borrowing and co-opting and then re redefining from, from other scholars. But the idea is basically that white populations um, are, are being negatively treated because of the advent of women or paying attention to minority communities or immigrants and that white white communities needed to f needed to fight back in a way and that really was the driver for mm -hmm. I mean one perfect example would be what happened with the Affordable Care Act um, there are many poor white populations in the states that I studied um, Tennessee Kansas and Missouri are the three states that are the core um, the minute the Affordable Care Act I mean it was obviously on m in many ways a flawed piece of legislation but many white people in these states would have benefited by having better health care, prescription medication coverage. They couldn't have been, um, you know, um, pre-existing conditions would have still had to have been covered. But the backlash against it was about Obama, which, which doctor, mm -hmm. African masks, all this kind of stuff. And what I found in looking at the data as one example is that if you were white and you lived in one of those states that rejected the Affordable Care Act, it cost every white person on the aggregate 14.9 days of life. So every white person in those states that rejected the Affordable Care Act was living about two weeks less because, because of their politics. Now, you I, might say, oh, please, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to ask, how do you calculate that? Um, it, it's actually, um, it took a long, the, the longest part of the book that took me several years was looking at, at the data, the data part of it. So I accessed a number of federal databases. There are mortality databases. With the Affordable Care Act, it was actually relatively easy because there were states that did adopt the Affordable Care Act. So, for example, Tennessee rejected the, 
Affordable Care Act, and its neighbor, Kentucky, um, accepted it. So all I did was compared what happened in the health trajectories to those populations. Um, mm-hmm. The same thing with guns. It's There was a before and after. So I compared states that made it much easier to get guns and states that had some reasonable measure of you know, an assault weapons ban or something like that. And it turned out it was the same thing, that having easy access to guns was was shortening the lifespans of white populations. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty remarkable when I started looking through the data. So from an outsider's perspective, and as a progressive, this has always been one of the things that is confounding to me, where the people who uh, could benefit from the Affordable Care Act are voting against it, are voting against their own self-interest. And you're a psychiatrist. Right. Um, so I take it that people don't see it that way. Why are people uh, voting against something that could help them? What's the psychiatry, psychology behind right. that? Well, I, uh, if, if nothing else from the book, I hope people I, – I recount people's narratives and my interactions with them in extensive detail because the stories themselves that the people tell really provide entry into a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of sense that the world is turning against them, this idea that they're being left out by globalization and factors like that. So part of the issue is that I, this, this particular form of white identity politics is it became this kind of safe community for, for a lot of people. And so in a, in a way, it's hard to see from the outside. And I became very, very sympathetic to that. And in a way, my own views about what I do in my own life changed over the course of writing writing my book. I, I ride a, book, a bike. I don't always wear a helmet. You know, I do plenty of things that are probably not good for my own health. And so in a way, in part, I started to become more sympathetic to that over the course of writing the book. The, the flip side, the kind of underside about that is that all of the topics that I look at, guns, education, healthcare, all have long racial histories that ha- that have this long history of kind of racial resentment like we were talking about before. Guns, for example, only white Americans could own firearms, particularly in the South for a long period of time. I look at education in Kansas, particularly because of the history of Brown versus Board of Education. Um, healthcare, there were tremendous, b- tremendous backlash when they tried to desegregate hospitals in the South because black and white patients were been together. So part of the argument I make is that there's, there's a pressure, a tension of history that's given pressure by these particular topics. And people in the present day don't really see that, that there's a history of all these issues that shapes why white populations feel the way they do about them. Of course. I found that interesting, your comment about writing without a helmet, because there are many different ways to look at self-interest, right? And um, measuring life expectancy is only one way to view that. There are plenty of people who choose to smoke because their quality of life is more important than their quantity, and mm-hmm. they enjoy smoking. And I imagine that many people would say the same, that you know, if they feel like they're voting to retain their liberty or to retain their privilege, which maybe they wouldn't say overtly, that that's more important than having those extra 14.9 days. Right, right. And I, I really experienced that very much, especially when I was doing my, the field work and talking to people. Um, I, I didn't go down there thinking I wanted to take away anybody's gun. I would never say anything like that. I went to try to understand, uh, guns are one example, the, why people thought the way they did. And I came, I came away with a lot of appreciation about the role of these particular politics in, in people's lives. And so part of it is I was not in any way trying to impose my agenda on anybody. I was trying to show the costs of these particular politics. But the cost wasn't that I think we should all go in and take away people's guns. I, I don't think that. Um, I think that the inability to talk about whiteness, to talk about the role of white privilege, to talk about racial hierarchies that exist, 
are really bad are really bad for us. And so part of the issue was there was this whole thing we couldn't talk about because we couldn't talk about whiteness in these interactions. And part of the argument of the book is that white privilege is really bad for particular right, white communities, particularly lower income white communities. And so having a more open conversation about whiteness, I feel would be actually more beneficial for them as well as for, for our country at this moment. And so I'm not trying to say more, more or less guns, more or less funding. It's really, can't we talk about whiteness in a way that's less destructive for everybody? And what do you mean by that, that white privilege is actually bad for these communities? I did feel like um, there was this idea when I went to interview people. I mean, in, in probably for me, one of the most charged parts of the book, I go to low-income housing and medical wards where there are very, very medically ill white Americans who are suffering from conditions that would have been treated had <laughs> more easily treated and funded had they lived in a state with the uh, with the Affordable Care Act. And I asked them, you know, people had liver liver failure, uh, kidney failure, lung problems. And these people were, you know, literally on death's doorstep. And I would ask them, do you think it might be beneficial to have the Affordable Care Act? And they would tell me, I don't want my money going to a system that is going to support Mexicans or welfare queens. I heard that again and again and again. And so this is not a judgment of them. But there was this idea that my own positionality, even in my moment of greatest need, because I'm a white American, is at a level above Mexicans and welfare queens. So this idea that there are racial others who are beneath me in this hierarchy, even though very wealthy Americans are are higher than me. And so they were holding on to this idea of their position in a hierarchy. And you could call that white privilege, you can call that white identity, whatever you want to call it. But in a way, it was funny because I came to think as a doctor that that, 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 that philosophy was actually partially what was killing them, right? Because it was blocking them from getting medical care in a way. And so in that sense, I just think that if we could have had a more open conversation about that, somehow it would have been better than me trying to talk them out of their politics. That's fascinating. There's another chapter in the book where you visit a grief support group for family members of people who've taken their own lives. And this is in rural Missouri. And to a person, the people who had committed suicide had done so with firearms. And at the end of one of these sessions, you ask, have any of these family members, has your has your uh, position on guns changed at all? And everybody says, no, we don't blame the gun. Is that right? That's right. So the rationale is sort of, this is a suicidal person. This is a mentally ill person. They would have found another way to take their own life. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I, I wear two hats at moments like that. On one hand, very powerfully in those interviews in Southern Missouri, which again are recounted in in a lot of detail in the book. I was a guy coming down, I mean, I'm really only coming from Tennessee, but I was seen as like a researcher coming into their community. And so in a way, guns guns were so personal to everybody. So many people slept with guns under their bed. They had guns that were given to them by their relatives or their parents. And so in a way, their fear was that I was gonna come and take away their gun. And they felt like no matter what I said, they were gonna defend, it was not just defend their gun, defend their way of life. Even in this profound moment of loss and pain, it was still, it's not the gun's fault because the gun represents our community. What I found was interesting, two things. One was, as I interviewed people over the course of time, pretty much everybody said, we don't blame the gun, but it wouldn't it be great if we had more background checks? Wouldn't it be great if we had gun safes or something? So they were advocating 
public health policies in a way. It's just that they weren't doing it in the kind of language that I think I would do as a as a physician or a public health person. So part of it was a question of language. I think that was that was that was certainly part of it. And the other part again was just that, you know, I feel like there was this sense that if they gave an inch, they would have had to give give a yard mm-hmm. in, in a way. And they've been they've been you know told over and again by by Trump by the NRA, guns are a part of our identity. It's part of our protection, our empowerment. That again, even in these moments where guns were so painful. Guns were so, so tied to a particular form of white identity that it was hard to step away from that. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've talked about this on the show before, but as a psychiatrist, does it hold much water for you when people blame mass shootings, for example, on mental illness rather than mm-hmm. on access to guns? Well, uh, again, it's funny because per- I chose gun suicide for a very particular reason in this book, which is that most gun suicide, I mean, the demographics are very interesting. Most gun suicide are white men, right? It's mm-hmm. it's largely a white a wh- white male phenomenon, and it's not linked to mental illness. And way more people die from gun suicide than do from mass shootings, even though mass shootings get all the um, get all the attention. And not, I mean, one lost life is a, li- a lost life too many. Um, but um, but I looked at gun suicide particularly because it's so amenable to policy, to particular policy changes. It's not a question of mental illness. Um, so we could bar a weapon from everybody who has, I mean, if we barred a weapon from everybody diagnosed with mental illness in this country, that would <laughs> that would be like two thirds of the, you know, everybody meets criteria for something in a way. But, but I would say that um, most gun suicide is impulsive. People you know, they're drunk, they hear their wife is having an affair, they get fired from work. It happens very quickly. It's not linked to a long history of mental illness. Mm, um, mm-hmm. In mass shootings, there is a, a bit longer history, but I feel like the, the, the relationship between them both is that they're both policy questions. These are both access to guns questions. So it's not like we're going to do psychotherapy with everybody and lessen this. Right. It's really, let's make it harder for people to get guns in their moments of high risk. Right. And what do you hope this book accomplishes? Do you hope to reach audiences who may traditionally be outside of this debate? Do you think this could be preaching to the converted? Or what do you hope to accomplish? Well, we're having one form of conversation about whiteness in this country right now. It's the white nationalist version of it that President Trump and other you know, far-right politicians are, are having. And I guess myself and other people who are working on this, I, I want I want to I want to support. I mean, I don't have any illusion that one book is going to change the world, but I want to support an, an alternative version of talking about whiteness, one that cuts across political boundaries, possibly, that talks about the mortal risks of whiteness, about what we gain and what we lose by thinking about whiteness in this way. Because I guess just as a person in this country right now, I'm tired of being told what whiteness is by, in a way that I kind of don't agree with. And so I do feel like more white Americans need to have honest conversations about what privileges do we get? Uh, what benefits do we get? What does that mean? Um, what's the flip side? In a way, it's it would be a lot easier for me to say, oh, these crazy people down south. But really, I feel like what I try to do in the book is to open these up as a parable to say, I'm a white American as well. And talking to other white Americans helps me understand much more about privilege. It under, helps me understand much more about open ways of talking about whiteness um, that might that might at least put pressure on this narrative that is about 
about making it great again and, and, and change that into saying, let's be more collaborative and honest and transparent. And the book is called Dying of Whiteness, and we can look for it in March of next year. Is that right? It's it's online now, so it's already on Amazon if people want to pre-order. But it comes out the first week of March uh, for real uh, from Basic Books. Great. Jonathan Metzl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. And now some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. 80 Flatbush, the mixed-use megadevelopment, received decisive approval by the City Council after some modifications. The signature tower of the project will now stand at 840 feet, more than 300 feet taller than nearby Williamsburg Savings Bank building. And it's still expected to cast a shadow on Fort Greene Park, thus reducing some of your tanning time. Ruth Bader Ginsburg may soon have a namesake in the borough. Borough President Eric Adams has launched a campaign to honor the Supreme Court justice by renaming the Brooklyn Municipal Building after her. Ginsburg was, of course, born and raised in Brooklyn and was the first woman to be named a tenured professor at Columbia Law School. One can wonder about the timing of naming the building after the longtime advocate of women's rights when the current Supreme Court nominee is being accused of sexual assault by multiple women. Sands Cafe, a new Williamsburg eatery, has abruptly closed following a viral tweet alleging owner Guy Sands is affiliated with white nationalist and alt-right groups. Apparently, he attended a party with Milo Yiannopoulos after the latter had been banned from Twitter. Sands denied that he was linked to these groups, but in a Vanity Fair article explained his attendance at the party by saying he has, quote, always been a contrarian. Well, if your brand of contrarianism includes alleged white supremacist leanings, then you're going to have a hard time selling food to Brooklyn millennials, even if it is avocado toast. As if the Atlantic Target wasn't already the seventh circle of hell, now it's been reported that the store and other targets in New York might have E. coli-tainted beef on their shelves. There's been a recall of 132,000 pounds of chuck, so if you're planning an early fall barbecue and bought beef that's labeled with EST-86R inside the USDA mark of inspection, toss it. So much for that USDA inspection. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at BKLYNER.com. Now, since this is our last show in September, we thought we'd part ways with the month by looking back at some of the things we didn't get to discuss, like the passing of legendary Brooklyn-born jazz pianist Randy Weston, who died earlier this month at the age of 92 in his Brooklyn home. Jazz critic Stanley Crouch said of Weston, he had the biggest sound of any jazz pianist since Ellington or Monk. Weston's work was notable for its exploration of the links between African and American music. We're about to see a lot less fuchsia. That's right, Dunkin' Donuts is losing its donuts. From now on, it will simply go by Dunkin' with an apostrophe. The CEO, David Hoffman, is shifting the chain's focus to beverages in apparent competition with Starbucks. But there's no competition in Brooklyn. Dunkin' has approximately 125 stores here, roughly five times more than Starbucks. And in light of the latest round of Kavanaugh hearings, this month's Speaking Truth to Power Award goes to Kamala Harris for her early September question to the Supreme Court nominee regarding his stance on Roe v. Wade. Can you think of any laws that give government the power to make decisions about the male body? That's the show for today. Join us next week when we meet the author of a book about civilian casualties in recent American wars and Ashley's conversation with Fran Lebowitz. Thanks for joining us.
Woman 2 BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>